Welcome to the Popular History Podcast, History Through Pope Color Glasses. My name is Greg, and this is the slightly delayed episode 8.10, Rome, Part 3, The War Within. I do apologize if you can hear the sound of a uh, laptop fan running. Uh, this is, I think, perhaps a temporary solution. Um, we'll get that figured out for now. That's what we got, and it'll get us an episode, well, now. In any case, by now you've heard most of my disclaimers, so let's go ahead and just launch in with a little recap of where we last left the Romans. By now you've probably heard my disclaimers a few times, so let's go ahead and just launch in with a little recap of Roman history to this point. Roman traditions trace their origins back to the legendary Trojan hero Aeneas, who escaped from the city of Troy after it was breached during the Trojan War and fled west, going through Carthage and jilting their queen Dido, before heading on to Sicily, and then settling down and founding a settlement called Alba Longa. A few more generations down the line, we hit the famous story of Romulus and Remus, twin descendants of Aeneas who are ordered to be killed, but who are rescued from the riverside and nursed to hell by a wolf, or possibly by a prostitute. Ancient sources note that the wording is ambiguous. Romulus and Remus decide to found a city on the spot where they'd been abandoned, so in April 753 BC, Rome is founded after Romulus kills Remus in a quarrel over how to count vultures. So far, so good? If not, check out episode 8.8, Rome, part 1, all vias lead to Italia. Also in that episode, we had the seven kings of Rome, starting with Romulus and ending with Tarquinius Superbus who left the Romans with such a bad taste for the idea of a monarch that over a thousand years later, even after over 500 years worth of emperors, the Romans were still insisting that they were a republic, thank you very much. And although that claim would be laughable after Augustus, uh, more on him later, for the period after the kings and before Augustus, historians have indeed agreed to call it the Roman Republic, distinct from the Roman Kingdom and the Roman Empire. It was the Roman Republic that gradually yet persistently took over all of modern Italy and became the preeminent power in the Mediterranean world, especially when they offered the previous claimants to that title, the Greeks and the Phoenicians, the latter in the form of their successor, the Carthaginians, though they were still known as the Punici to the Romans, hence that whole thing about the Punic Wars being fought between the Romans and the Carthaginians. If you're a little lost on this part, you might check back in on episode 8.9, Rome, part 2, Carthago, Delenda Est, since we've had a bit of a longer break than usual from then till now. Alright, so Carthage and Greece are down. The Gauls, the nightmare fuel of the Romans ever since Rome was sacked under the Gallic chieftain Brennus in the early days of the Republic, they're still around. But before their attention could turn that way, the Romans had to face a new sort of enemy, one that comes from oppression within. They'll be seeing more and more such internal conflict as we progress. In 135 BC, after facing harsher conditions than usual due to the surplus of supply making them disposable in the eyes of their oppressors, much of the enslaved population of Sicily rebelled, led by a man named Eunice, who took the name Antiochus and called his followers Syrians, definitely leaning into the imagery of the Seleucids. Based on the account from Diodorus Siculus, Eunice was quite a colorful character. Quote, Prior to the revolt, 
He used to say that the Syrian goddess appeared to him, saying that he should be king, and he repeated this, not only to others, but even to his own master. Since his claims were treated as a joke, Antigonus, taken by his hocus-pocus, would introduce Eunice, for that was the wonder-worker's name, at his dinner parties, and cross-question him about his kingship and how he would treat each of the men present. And since he gave a full account of everything without hesitation, explaining with what moderation he would treat the masters, and in some, making a colorful tale of his quackery, the guests were always stirred to laughter, and some of them, picking up a nice tidbit from the table, would present it to him, adding, as they did so, that when he became king, he should remember the favor. But, as it happened, his charlatanism did in fact result in kingship, and for the favors received in jest at the banquets, he made a return of thanks in good earnest. End quote. Eunice's rebellion would carry on for three years, eventually including most of Sicily. But there's only been one successful slave rebellion in history, and this wasn't it. The end result was many, many executions, including hundreds, if not thousands, of crucifixions that method were paying extra attention to for reasons that will become clear if they aren't already. This is the first mention I caught of crucifixion being used by the Romans, but I don't pretend my research was exhaustive by any means. At around the same time as the First Servile War, as Eunice's Rebellion is foreshadowingly named, there was also a populist rebellion brewing among the freemen. Okay, remember the Lex Licinia Sextia? No? Well, it's that 367 BC law I mentioned a while back, the one that limited private landholding and interest rate caps. The landholding stuff, basically a cap on how much real estate the rich could scoop up, was the main force behind this populist rebellion. Because, evidently, that law either never really went into effect or had fallen by the wayside. Or, if we want to get a little conspiratorial, maybe those laws never existed. I'm not prepared to go there myself, but I did see some commentary to the effect that, in particular, Livy's account of the 4th century forerunners sounds suspiciously parallel to the Gracchi in places, beyond the normal repetition of history, that is. Without sweating the details too much and without going into conspiracy, the bare facts remain that in the 4th century, plebeians became eligible to serve as consuls, and now the Gracchi are pushing for land reform. Who are these Gracchi? They're two brothers, who are connected to the various Scipios, their dad having married Scipio Africanus' daughter, Cornelia. And, whoa, that in itself is notable, just being a woman's name making it into our narrative, even though it's kind of used as a pass-through here. In any case, the elder Gracchi brother, Tiberius Gracchus, was especially well-connected, being the brother-in-law of Scipio Aemilianus, that final destroyer of Carthage with Tiberius himself, at least according to his propagandists, having been personally first over the walls of Carthage. Tiberius was elected tribune of the plebs in 133, and immediately ran with the idea of land reform, which had gotten to be a big deal because, though the Lex Licinia Sextia was on the books, disparities in land holdings had actually gotten worse as Roman-controlled territory expanded, with the most well-connected getting the lion's share of newly available land, and the scraps getting fewer and further apart. In many cases, soldiers' families had gone bankrupt while they were off on long campaigns, with their small farms then being scooped up by the major landholders. 
All this might seem familiar to you. Plutarch's Life of Tiberius, and put a pen in Plutarch, it includes a speech on this that sounds similar to Jesus' observation that, quote, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, end quote, in Matthew and Luke, which we'll get to soon. Here's what Plutarch puts in Tiberius's mouth, quote, The wild beasts that roam over Italy have their dens. Each has a place of repose and refuge. But the men who fight and die for Italy enjoy nothing but the air and light. Without house or home, they wander about with their wives and children. End quote. Now, sure, the legal basis for fixing this land disparity and homeless vet problem was already in place, and tribunes like Tiberius could override the Senate and push things through, whether the Senate liked it or not. And you can bet they didn't like this land reform plan being the biggest fat cats around. But Tiberius wasn't the only tribune. In fact, there were ten tribunes for most of the Roman Republic. So the Senate responded by rolling out Octavius, another tribune, who was willing to block Tiberius's plan. Now, keep in mind, tribunes had to be physically present to do that blocking, to veto things. So Tiberius Gracchus had Octavius physically removed and proceeded. Now, Tiberius Gracchus would live to regret setting this precedent of ignoring the sacrosanctity of tribunes, but for now, he got away with it. In theory, the people were at this point supposed to tear him limb from limb, but all his limbs stayed connected to his other limbs, or rather, to his torso. What a weird phrase. Anyways, seeing that Tiberius was still popular even after this, the Senate yielded. A land reform commission was established, and slowly began its work. This wasn't intended as wealth redistribution, as owners were compensated, but I'm sure there were complaints about the value assessment, as there always are in such cases. Throughout human history, your land is worthless when the tax assessor comes, and it's invaluable when the state is flexing the equivalent of eminent domain. Perhaps unsurprisingly, this whole process was looking to take longer than Tiberius's one-year term as Tribune to complete, not least because of efforts from opponents to drag it all out, the kind of things that are still familiar to modern politics, but also because the childless king of Pergamum chose this year to die and to will Pergamum to the people of Rome, hoping to avoid the mess of actually having it be conquered. Over the objections of the Senate, the Land Commission included Pergamum in their purview. With so much still left on the old to-do list, Tiberius went ahead and sought a second consecutive year as tribune. This seems reasonable enough, especially because by now Tiberius was facing a slew of lawsuits that would apply once he was no longer tribune and was therefore no longer sacrosanct. Then a technical term for special immunity that comes from political office, which still basically has the same meaning today, although these days it's not a legal matter so much as it's a matter of custom, typically, sacred cows and whatnot. In any case, at this point in Roman history, re-election as tribune was illegal. But if he was re-elected, Tiberius argued, what did that rule matter? And who were his opponents to say otherwise? Notably, re-election as tribune wasn't unprecedented. According to Livy, both Licinius and Sextius the tribunes behind the Lex Licinia Sextia, that was the legal basis for all this land reform business, had both been re-elected repeatedly 
over the course of a contentious decade while they pressed for that law. That's in Livy, Book 6, paragraphs 35 to 42. And I'm citing that because this is one section where I'm actually disagreeing with Mike Duncan, so I'm feeling a little bit over my skis, but I have a citation, and I went and read Livy, so if I'm wrong, then Livy's wrong too, or I'm just really misunderstanding. In any case, Tiberius would not be following in the footsteps of Licinius and Sextius, serving year after year. No, along with several hundred of his supporters, Tiberius Gracchus was beaten to death by a mob stirred up by his opponents, with the first major blow being struck by a fellow tribune, sacrosanctity be damned. If he looked back on his own violation of the tribunal sacrosanctity in the case of his rival Octavius, Tiberius almost certainly did not reflect on the words of the prophet Hosea, quote, They have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind, end quote. But we can. Now these are the Gracchi, as in plural, instead of Gracchus, singular, because Tiberius's legacy was, in time, carried on by his younger brother, Gaius, who was elected tribune a decade after Tiberius's murder. Gaius aimed even higher than Tiberius, picking up the banner of land reform and adding to it things like free clothes and equipment for soldiers, a minimum age limit for military draft, 17, and a cap on the price of bread, a forerunner of the famous bread and circuses of imperial times. As you can imagine, Gaius also went after his brother's murderers, including with retroactively applicable laws, that is, punishing people for actions that weren't crimes when they were committed. Now, like his brother before him, Gaius was immensely popular with the people, and immensely not popular with the Senate. Also, like his brother before him, well, let's let Gaius live a little first before we get to all that. So, Gaius was successfully re-elected as tribune, and he took a trip over to Carthage, or where Carthage had been, to oversee the construction of a colony in its remnants, which would help the land availability issues, and which would have been pretty silly if those fields had been salted, so yes, that's a myth. Now, when Gaius got back to Rome, he moved from the Ritzy Quarter to a slum to show his oneness with the common people, a move that reminds me of Pope Francis's move from the Apostolic Palace to a two-room apartment in the Domus Santa Marta. Now, Pope Francis has yet to meet the fate of the Gracchi, but his story isn't finished at the time of this recording, unlike all, well, most of his predecessors. It's really weird having a Pope Emeritus hanging around. Oh, the fate of the Gracchi. Did I spoil it? Oops. Gaius Gracchus officially lost his third tribunal election. I don't pretend to know whether the election was stolen or not, but let's just say Gaius disagreed with their result. At one point, an attendant of one of Gaius's critics was beaten to death by Gaius's supporters. In response, the Senate rolled out something new. A decree stating... Consules derent operam nequid detrimenti res publica caperet. Or, in the language of the modern barbarians, let the consuls see to it that the state suffer no harm. Historians would eventually nickname this a Senatus Consultum Ultimum, also known as an SCU, or a final act. And though it seems theoretically the target still had a right to trial, in practice, 
an SCU gave the consoles a license to kill. Which, actually, since they're consoles, they already really had a license to kill. It's, it's complicated. In any case, we'll see more of these in the next few episodes. Now, Gaius knew what was coming next, and so he turned to the expected noble death of disgraced Romans. Suicide. Thousands of his supporters were killed in the aftermath of all this, and pretty much everything he had worked for was overturned. Except for the bread thing. Now, I'm going to go ahead and give you some of the popular analysis of this particular moment in Roman history. To put it way too simply, after the final defeat of Carthage, the Romans were without the unity that comes from a common enemy, and internal issues began to come to the forefront, especially class questions, with land reform being the leading cause for the martyred Gracchi brothers, and freedom from literal slavery as the motivating factor in the First Servile War. Now, if you were expecting the name Spartacus to come up in the context of that Servile War, just keep in mind that there were not one, but three Servile Wars, so you do still have Spartacus to look forward to in this episode if you've heard that name and were wondering how he fits in. Of course, Spartacus is far from the only big name in this episode. With each historical figure I introduce, I try to operate on the assumption that I've got at least some listeners who have never heard of them before. But I have made two exceptions to this. Jesus Christ and Caesar. Now, we'll get to Jesus in a few episodes. As for Caesar, I'm sure you've heard the name. But I'm not sure whether it's because you know he was stabbed on the Ides of March, or because you know he was the first emperor. And really, I'm being coy, because... Those are two different men, just to be clear. We'll get into more detail on both of them as we go. But to begin, we should talk about Marius, who, like Tiberius Gracchus, had served under Scipio Aemilianus during the Third and Final Punic War, the one that saw the destruction of Carthage. And Marius was also one of the first tribunes to have to follow up on the Gracchi. Marius wasn't as radical as the Gracchi, though he was on their ideological team, as it were. After the Gracchi, the social divisions and the political responses to them in Rome were, in a sense, rebranded. The early Republic had been largely divided between the Patricians and the Plebeians, with the Plebeians gradually gaining rights once reserved to the Patricians. Similarly, the late Republic is now divided into the conservative allies of the old order, the Optimates, and the reform-minded friend of the common man style, Populares. Marius was in the latter camp. And Marius did have a bit of common man style credentials in the sense that he was a, quote, new man, end quote, or a novus homo, to use the Latin term, meaning no one from his family had risen to high office before, which was unusual in the very family-legacy-oriented Roman world. But don't be fooled. This wasn't a rags-to-riches story. General Marius didn't come from an old-money family, but they weren't struggling financially. Ah, I went and called him General before telling you about his military service. Suffice to say, it feels very natural to call him General Marius. Following up on his early service in the Third Punic War, Marius arranged another spot for himself in northern Africa, in neighboring Numidia, fighting against the usurper, Jugurtha, 
who may not have been a major concern if it weren't for the fact that he was making Rome just plain look bad by doing things like defeating them and then humiliating the survivors, as well as a series of known or at least strongly suspected bribes of senators. It was Marius who got credit for ending the living mockery of Rome that was Jugurtha, though it seems one of his talented officers played a major role. Quite possibly more major than Marius himself, but Officer Sulla didn't have the press around to drive that point home at the time. Soon, he would. But for now, it's Marius's time to shine, and shine he did, especially against the invading Germanic tribe known as the Cimbri. And heads up, I'm going to go ahead and call the Cimbri and various other non-Romans barbarians. It's an easy shorthand, and for what it's worth, I'm mostly Germanic myself. Now really, for Marius, it was the invasion of the Cimbri that really launched his career. After the first few Roman attempts to put a stop to their incursion had failed miserably while Marius was still mopping up in northern Africa, his name suddenly started appearing at the top of lists of competent military leaders the Romans had on their back pocket. And frankly, Marius was at the bottom of those lists, too. They were very short lists. With Sulla being overlooked, Marius wasn't just the one for the job, he was the only one for the job. And, given the state of things, the assembly wasn't too concerned about breaking some precedents and overriding some norms. By the end of the Cimbrian War, Marius had dramatically reformed the military, and was in the middle of serving an unprecedented five consecutive terms as consul, consul being an office where the terms were almost never consecutive. Fabius the Delayer had served as consul two consecutive years while occupying Hannibal, but that was a hundred years before, and it was twice, not five times. Marius had gotten a very free hand here, and he used it to great effect. But before we dive into that, though, we need to talk about legions a bit. Because looking back, I realized that I neglected to explain what I meant by a legion, that's more or less the go-to Roman military unit. So let's go ahead and take a moment to do that now. The term legion for an army group apparently stretches back into the Roman kingdom, where it may have basic where it may have basically meant all the levies available to the Romans. And at that point, we were indeed talking levies, that is, folks drafted to meet the needs of the moment, not a professional army. Marius would change that, was shifting from the traditional maniple subdivisions for legions to the more flexible cohort system, which I'm not going to get into except to say that the flexibility proved helpful. Now, in theory and on paper, legions in this late Republican period consisted of a little over 5,000 soldiers of various types, mostly infantry, but with some cavalry as well. These numbers would be higher perhaps double if you count all the camp followers and support personnel, and they may well be lower depending on how a given military campaign has gone so far in terms of casualties and such. Legions were commanded by a legatus, and in case you're wondering whether that has any connection to the diplomatic office of legate you might have heard in connection with the papacy, no, uh, not particularly at least as I understand it, and I may well be wrong here, so do correct me if needed, the term legate, in the diplomatic sense, does come from ancient Rome, but it was a separate position that happened to have the same name. 
But functionally, it was basically the same office it would be under the popes, as a sort of super ambassador. We'll get into that more in time. For now, let's get back into what Marius was getting up to with his military reforms. When looking at the military, Marius had three problems to solve. Recruitment was low, morale wasn't great, and the troops were out of shape and undisciplined. Pretty standard military stuff, frankly. In terms of recruitment, believe it or not, up until this time, serving in the military had been restricted to only the wealthier families of Rome. You had to have land to sign up, and in the early days of the Republic, the richest of the rich actively sought out military service as the path to the greatest treasure of all, military glory and the honor that came with it. But Rome had now conquered even Carthage, and was now uncontested as the greatest power in the Mediterranean world, despite a strong tradition of making her defeated enemies out to be as intimidating as possible when recounting both victory and defeat, in either scenario it makes you look better, despite that talent for getting folks to believe, or at least to pretend to believe, that the fish really was this big, great enemies, even by these definitions, were getting harder to come by. There was no one the Romans saw civilized that opposed them anymore, so all wars were against barbarians. Intimidating, yes, but of course, no match for the <coughs> civilized <laughs> Romans, or even worse, they're facing off against slaves like in the Servile War, or worst of all, there was peace! What glory is there to be gained in peacetime? No, for the upper classes, the military life had lost its appeal. Of course, there was still enough glory in leading troops to draw elites, but grunt-level soldiering? No. No thank you. Marius's solution was to remove the property requirement, thus giving the lower classes the opportunity to have a reliable income and the possibility of spoils taken from defeated enemies to boot. New recruits flooded in, further spurred on by a few other incentives Marius used to sweeten the pot. For example, the promise of land in the relevant conquered regions at the end of the soldier's tenure. Under Marius, by the way, military service was a 16-year commitment, though that would rise in time. The idea of committing for so many years was itself new. Historically, armies had been raised from volunteers as needed and then disbanded. But Marius saw it was high time to implement a professional army, with pay and everything. Now, with these items in place, recruitment and morale were both addressed. Helpfully, what was good for morale was also good for recruitment. There were challenging bits here, too. It wasn't just pay and benefits. For example, after the Marian reforms, soldiers were actually expected to carry their gear and supplies instead of having a slave to take care of that for them, which combined with regular training and drills, now that soldiering was a career rather than a periodic hobby, that helped to get soldiers more in proper fighting form than they'd ever been. In the end, all this served another, less advertised purpose. The army was now personally loyal to their general. They were willing to learn discipline and carry their gear in exchange for their pay and their promise of land. Things which, in their mind, would come from their general, rather than from the Senate back in Rome. 
especially indebted to their commander, and to Marius in particular, were the various non-citizens who now had, to borrow a modern term, a path to Roman citizenship through military service. Access to Roman citizenship was a big issue, one that... Oh, oh crap, the slaves are revolting again. In fact, Marius's recruiting of allies to fight the Cimbri was the trigger for this particular revolt, known as the Second Servile War. One ally pointed out that the Romans had enslaved their able-bodied men, and so the Senate decreed folks who had been enslaved from Roman allies were to be freed. This gave other slaves who had hailed from non-allies an idea. They rose up to take the freedom that they had been denied because of the political status of their homeland. And that's basically all you need to know about the Second Servile War, which, like the first, was mostly confined to Sicily. Marius didn't get involved, instead carrying on fighting the Cimbri and continuing with his consulships. Sulla steered clear, too. No glory in defeating slaves. The Cimbri were a worthier foe. And steering clear wasn't hard, since, similar to the First War, again, this was confined to Sicily. Things carried on, with both the slaves and the Cimbri subdued by the year 100 BC, the last year of Marius's consecutive consulships. That year was fairly eventful, with the tribune you don't particularly need to note, but, eh, sure, his name was Lucius Apulius Saturninus, acting like a new Gracchi brother, a move which was genuinely welcomed by the populare Marius. But Saturninus's plans certainly had their faults. For instance, the land wasn't freshly conquered. According to the second century historian Appian, it was specifically the land recovered from the invading Cimbri that Marius and his troops had beaten back, meaning it had already had Roman owners who would understandably object to it being handed over to new owners. But things really took a turn when there was a fresh flare-up of political violence. Gaius Memmius, an opponent of Saturninus, was beaten to death by Saturninus's agents during the voting for a position Memmius had been likely to win over Saturninus. The old, you can't beat me, you're dead, campaign strategy. Understandably, I think, Marius wasn't prepared to defy the Senate when they responded by issuing one of those Senatus Consultum Ultimum, the final acts that we talked about. That license to kill order put Marius himself in charge of hunting down Saturninus and his supporters. Eventually, Marius had his former ally Saturninus and his men trapped in one of the Senate houses, ostensibly awaiting a proper trial. Now, if you like Marius, you can imagine that he had nothing to do with the mob that broke in and lynched the lot of them. Though, of course, you can also still like Marius generally, while thinking he probably knew about that and yet allowed it to happen. I do think that's where I tend to fall. In the end, Marius turning on his populare allies was something of a sign of things to come. His next great opponent was in many ways his natural ally, the Sochi. Now, I'm not introducing you to another tribe here. Sochi was the collective term for the various Italian tribes allied to Rome, including previous heavy hitters from our first Roman history episode a few weeks ago, like the Etruscans and the Samnites. I believe I called the Samnites in particular 
mostly subjugated but undigested, and I mentioned that they'd pop up again? Well, it's time for that. This conflict goes down as the Social War, which might get you thinking it was some sort of class struggle thing, and in some ways it was, since the Soshi were tired of getting little while giving a lot. But as I understand it, the name comes from that Soshi term, rather than there being a bunch of rabble running around rising against the aristocracy as such. So, what were the Soshi going on about? Well, in a lot of ways, you could do worse than to think of them being tired of being treated as second-class citizens. But, fundamentally, the issue is they weren't citizens at all. At least, not most of them. They were ruled by Rome, and they fought alongside Rome, uh, literally, serving as flanks while the Romans themselves served as the center, and furthermore, they composed at least half, perhaps even two-thirds of the military. But they had fewer rights because of their lack of Roman citizenship. Now, some efforts had been made to placate them and make things more equitable, including some of what Marius himself had gotten up to with his military reforms, since those included provisions for associate to earn full citizenship after completing a period of service in the Roman army. But Marius's reforms weren't enough. In the year 91, the powder keg blew in a familiar pattern. Yet another reform-minded tribune of the plebs appeared in the form of Marcus Livius Drusus. Drusus pressed for citizenship for the Soshi and was assassinated. The Soshi took up arms en masse, and the social war was on. Now, spoiler, the men we're focusing on in this episode are the focus of this episode because they exercised tremendous influence over late Republican Rome, and they do that primarily by being ridiculously successful military leaders. So it should come as no surprise when I note that generals Marius and Sulla, and yes, Sulla is now a general in his own right, as well as others I'm not bothering mentioning, well, they were ultimately victorious over the Soshi. But hang on, because even with that, the Soshi did get their main demand of citizenship. At first, this was just an incentive offered to the Soshi who hadn't rebelled in order to keep them from joining in. But even the very much rebelling Samnites got citizenship in the end. Uh, by the way, the first law, the one that didn't apply to the rebelling Soshi was put forward by one Lucius Julius Caesar, the grandfather of a certain major figure we'll look at it towards the end of this episode. And no, it's actually not the one you're thinking of. Now, why on earth did the Romans give citizenship to the losers of a war that was all about getting citizenship? Well, basically, they had other things on their plate. Mithridates VI, the king of Pontus in modern Turkey had been mucking around in the east, invading Rome's client kingdoms and things like that. In 88 BC, Marius and Sulla butted heads to an unprecedented degree over who would be sent to put Mithridates in his place. As in, the Senate votes for Sulla, then there's a lot of riots and death, and oh look, actually Marius is going to be in charge. But wait, here comes Sulla at the head of troops and he's marching. Not on Pontus, but on Rome. Civil war time. 
With just gladiators to defend the city, Marius ends up in exile in North Africa, among the ruins of Carthage. That's a potent scene, and perhaps a philosophical reflection on the ultimate fate of all nations. Would Rome wind up like Carthage? Abandoned? Home to exiles and wolves? From paintings to chocolate bars, there are a surprising number of depictions of a pensive Marius among the wrecked columns of the once great city of Carthage. But how did we get here? I mean, Marius got there by boat, obviously, but I mean metaphorically. How did we get here to strongmen slinging it out for control of the empire? I mean, control of the republic. Carthage itself gives us a clue. Hannibal, the greatest of the Carthaginian generals, was opposed by the greatest Roman of his day. It was Scipio who, we're told, had first been called Imperator by the locals when he took control of formerly Carthaginian territories in Spain. The title was a bit of an escalation, or perhaps a logical extension, of the long-standing general concept of Imperium, which basically meant supreme authority in a given context, including the ability to execute folks and things like that. I went back and forth on how to cover this because, really, the idea of calling a person who exercises Imperium an Imperator is basically like calling a person who rules a ruler. Not much is added when you turn the verb into a job title. And yet, at least two historians, Polybius and Livy, go into this Scipio-slash-Imperator connection in some detail. Of course, maybe Livy just saw that Polybius had talked about it, so he figured he should talk about it too. But even then, I could do worse than to follow that example. In any case, I couldn't find earlier examples of someone being called Imperator, and though both Polybius and Livy point out that Scipio accepts the title in order to avoid being called king, it's clear that there's a bit more to his status, particularly out in the provinces, than simply acting as general on behalf of Rome. For one thing, Scipio's control of Carthage's former Spanish holdings give him real, personal power. Governing Spain was a way of printing money at the time, Mike Duncan, among many other things, notes the fact that the land that would one day get rich from silver mines in the Americas was, at this early point, playing the part of frontier outpost full of productive silver mines. Of course, what really made Scipio Imperator, with shadings of the future meaning of the word, was the personal loyalty he had from the troops. They had already followed him to the ends of the earth. These were Rome's first lands outside Italy. He'd given them glory and honor and pay, and adding in those conquered lands, the troops could easily see the benefits of sticking with Scipio, even beyond the standard love troops will have for a good commander. Now, I don't know if you've come across Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast, but if you have, just pretend I'm doing the next little bit in his voice, but don't get your hopes up too high, because I didn't realize until just now he's actually done a series on the Punic Wars already, which I haven't listened to because I don't have enough scratch to pay for as many podcasts as I'd like, 
but I'm sure it's good. But since I haven't listened to it, and since I aim for mostly free podcasts when making recommendations, and since the Penic Wars were last week, Hardcore History is not my official recommendation for this week. Sorry, Dan Carlin, you'll have to get your listeners elsewhere. In any case, this week's official recommendation is Totalis Rankium, the hilarious podcast that's already ranked all of the Roman emperors from Augustus to Augustulus in the West, and is now working their way through the East, marching on to 1453 and Constantine XI. Yep, the emperors were, spoiler alert, setting up soon, will be with us for a long time. Indeed, for hundreds of years around the end of antiquity, new popes will look to the emperors for confirmation in their role. Anyways, let's go back into Dan Carlin mode and see if we can find our way back through Marius and Sulla. Remember them? No? Well, alright. So, just because you officially have control of an army doesn't mean you really have control of that army. Technically, you could say that the consuls for the year, and ultimately the senate, had control of the troops in Hispania through Scipio. But really, if it came to it, if, say, the senate were to suddenly capitulate to Hannibal right now, and Fabius were to go along with that, and Scipio, technically several rungs down, though it's hard to tell how the Romans exactly handled all those details, if Scipio were the lone holdout, what would that look like? Well, keep in mind, Scipio's men were fiercely loyal to him personally, so he's not going to be the lone holdout. The Senate and the Consuls can say what they like. At the end of the day, the troops were going to stay with Scipio. Scipio had taken the client-patron model prevalent in the ancient world and had taken it to the level of full legions and international affairs. He was the patron. Those under him, including local kings and tribal leaders, they were the clients and they owed him personal loyalty. And that is where the power lay. The personal loyalty of the troops, even over the law. That's what makes one go from holding an imperium to being an imperator. Scipio never really defied the Senate, though he certainly could have. Marius never had particular reason to. Sulla was another story, and the triumvirs would follow in Sulla's footsteps. Anyone familiar with Mike Duncan's History of Rome, and I'm sure you are since you took my recommendation a few weeks ago and have heard me talking about it anyways since, anyone familiar with Mike Duncan's podcast knows I'm drawing heavily from his excellent analysis here, abridging, simplifying, and rubbishing. If you want to hear the roots of this section in his better words, I do refer you to History of Rome, episode 28, Taking Stock. Credit where due. Anyways, back to Marius and Sulla fighting over command of the troops headed to Pontus. It may seem petty, or downright strange, going to war over the right to go to war. 
But military success and the glory it brought was the path to power for folks like Marius and Sulla. Marius, the new man, had been from a family that had never seen high office before, but he had proven himself through his martial talents, and Sulla had followed much the same path, though in some ways he went even further, to the top of Roman military achievement and honor. Sulla had the grass crown. The grass crown was not an award from the Senate. Rather, after an imperiled unit was rescued by the action of a commander, it was literally woven from the local grass on site by the rescued unit after their unanimous decision to honor the rescuing commander in that way. In Sulla's case, he had apparently earned this highest honor during the recent social war. And, like Scipio before him, he had also been proclaimed Imperator. That title didn't yet have the significance it would acquire, but Sulla did take things a step further when, not long after, he defied the Senate and marched on Rome itself. And so we're back to the narrative present, with Marius sitting in exile among the ruins of Carthage, and Sulla soon on his way to fight Mithridates, with the commission having been secured at sword point after his unprecedented march on Rome. Never in the prior history of the Republic, over 400 years at this point, had the Senate been so brazenly defied. Nor would it be again. <laughs> oh, just kidding. The spell is broken. What had been unthinkable would never be unthinkable again. And yet, it wasn't all Sulla from here on out, though you'd be forgiven if you thought it were. No, Sulla really did have his hands full fighting Mithridates, the worthiest external enemy of the age. And with Sulla's attention on that war, Marius was able to return and ultimately end up elected as consul once again, this time for the year 86, his seventh consulship allegedly the divine fulfillment of an omen he'd come across in his youth, an eagle's nest with seven eaglets in it, much more than the standard one or two. With that particular box checked, I suppose, uh, Marius died just 17 days into that seventh consulship, apparently of natural causes. Now, Marius's successor when it came to carrying the anti-Sulla banner and rallying the troops for that cause was one Lucius Cornelius Cinna. Now, for several years, during a period known as the Dominatio Cinna, Cinna ruled Rome. But by 84 BC, Sulla was done with Mithridates, and he switched his attention back to the rebellious, well, at least rebellious in his eyes, capital. Cinna died before the civil war could properly flare back up, and though there was a replacement commander for the Marian troops in place, well, the fact that they're still called the Marian troops, despite Marius having been dead for years at this point, might suggest that they didn't have a lot of leadership worth noting. In fact, many of the troops deserted over to Sulla's side, and by 81 BC, after the decisive Battle of the Colline Gate, Sulla's second civil war 
was effectively concluded, leaving Sulla the uncontested ruler of Rome, the first in such a position since the days of the kings of Rome. The Senate did as Sulla said, not the other way around, and Sulla even minted his own coins, apparently with his own dang face on them. Dictator and Imperator, Sulla was in charge. He doubled the size of the Senate, filling it with his supporters, and he substantially scaled back the power of the tribunes. And, as you might expect, it was not a good time for those who had opposed him. According to Plutarch, quote, Sulla now began to make blood flow, and he filled the city with deaths without number or limit. End quote. To be clear, this was fairly standard political violence at this point. Marius' side had done much the same to Sullen supporters. Among those on Sulla's prescription list was Marius' young nephew, a man named Gaius Julius Caesar. Unsurprisingly, Caesar, the son of the governor of Asia, so not a nobody, but not yet the definitive somebody he would become, Caesar had sided with Uncle Marius, and he had been given status as the Flamen Dialis, the high priest of Jupiter. This was a high honor. Technically, as one of the three Flamen Maiores, that is, major priests, the Flamen Dialis outranked even the Pontifex Maximus in the religious hierarchy. But, in a pattern that happens quite often in history, we'll see it plenty, a dignified religious office is often the end of a political career. And if Caesar had remained Flamen Dialis, he would not be remembered today. Banned from being out of the city of Rome overnight, from touching a horse, from touching iron, and, rather pointedly, from so much as looking at an army outside the Pomerium, that is, the legal city limits of Rome, the military was not an option for young Julius Caesar, the teenaged high priest of Jupiter. Additionally, further cementing his status in the anti-Sulla faction, young Caesar was married to Cinna's daughter, Cornelia, giving her the role of Flaminica to Caesar's Flamen, and making it legally impossible for him to divorce her. Not that he would have been much tempted to, as long as Cinna was ruling Rome, and Caesar was required by the traditions of his office to sleep in Rome every night. In some ways, this Flamendialis honor seems almost like a hostage situation, that is, in the generally relaxed ancient sense of hostages, where your children would hang out in the care of your allies in comfort so long as they remained your allies, and in substantially less comfort if you betrayed those allies. In Caesar's case, if there had been a hint of hostage status to keep the elder Gaius Julius Caesar in line, that need went away with the elder Caesar's death in 85 BC. Of course, it was all a bit of a moot point, because as I mentioned before starting off about Caesar, Marius had died, and Cinna was soon dead. Sulla was firmly in charge, and now we're caught back up to the prescription lists, where Caesar had ended up after refusing to divorce Cinna's daughter Cornelia. 
In response, Sulla stripped Caesar of his high priesthood and his inheritance, and Caesar went into hiding. According to Suetonius, the Vestal Virgins appealed to Sulla on Caesar's behalf. It also seems that Caesar's mother may have had a hand in the negotiations. Either way, Sulla was swayed, and he removed Caesar's death sentence, while nevertheless reportedly noting that he saw many a Marius in Caesar. Of course, take that with a grain of salt. There's a bit of a tradition of old man hinting at the future greatness of young man throughout Roman history. There's a parallel story of Scipio Aemilianus, the victor of the Third Punic War, allegedly saying, perhaps this is the man, while patting a young Marius on the shoulder when he was asked about who would be a worthy successor to him. It seems to be a habit of blending the idea of greatness being visible even in youth with the long-standing Roman love of foreshadowing and omens. Remember Marius's nest of seven eaglets, representing his seven consulships? Yeah. Anyways, whether he predicted or not, personally I'm going with not, Sulla soon got to see Caesar start off on his military career, which Sulla himself had made possible by removing Caesar from the Flamen Dialis role. Soon, Caesar had distinguished himself and earned the civic crown, the second highest honor. Like Sulla's grass crown, even senators were to respectfully stand when someone wearing the civic crown appeared. And, rest assured, these were all men who were happy to flaunt their privileges and honors. Yes, stand. I am here. Now, sometime early in his career, the timing isn't the clearest, Julius Caesar was captured by pirates from the Turkish region of Cilicia. They held him captive for over a month, during which time we're told their prisoner would, to their amusement, order them about, telling them to be quiet when he thought them too loud, chastising them as uncultured if they didn't like the speeches he practiced on them, and generally just being a pompous young upstart. Frankly, I would have been amused too. Now, famously, when Caesar heard the ransom the pirates were asking for, he was insulted and demanded that the ransom be raised from 20 talents to 50 talents, more than double. You gotta love it. On a bit of a darker note, while captive, Caesar would also tell the pirates he was going to have them executed once he was free. Sure enough, once freed, he turned around and led troops to victory over the pirates. Then, overriding the local governor who had wanted to sell them into slavery, Caesar had all the pirates crucified. Now getting back to Sulla, after serving as dictator for a few years, Sulla retired. He had been saying that his aim was to fix the Republic and then stand aside. And he, well, at least he did the second thing. I don't think we can say the Republic is fixed. Anyways, Sulla lived to see Caesar earned that civic crown, and I like to think he was around for Caesar and the pirates, too. But perhaps not, as he didn't stay long after retiring from office, dying the next year and leaving behind a memorable epitaph. Quote, No better friend, no worse enemy. End quote. So, that's Sulla. 
one more tidbit before we dive into the triumvirates. The oldest instances we have for the slogan SPQR, which comes out as the Senate and the People of Rome, when spelled out and translated. Anyways, the oldest examples we have of that particular phrase come from this period of Sulla's dictatorship. It's possible it was around before and just started being used more commonly now, so we have examples preserved by chance. But it's also possible the phrase was both adopted and invented during this period. I really don't know which is more likely. Frankly, either way it seems like it would have served Sulla well as he packed the Senate with his optimate buddies while trying to downplay the intermediary-type role of the Tribune of the Plebs and their corresponding popular assembly. Nope, Rome was governed by the good old Senate, along with the people, or whatever that meant in the absence of the tribunes and the, and the popular assembly, the people, whatever. All right, at least, yes, the people in theory. In practice, we've been seeing capable men of distinguished birth running things as they see fit, regardless of the Senate and the people. They're really only stopped by more capable men of distinguished birth. Tune in next time for episode 8.11, Rome, part 4, The Rule of Three.